Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. There was a vanity project, frankly, for Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of this country, getting a two-year temporary seat at the United Nations Security Council. And uh, I, I think people who really knew what they were talking about had a good sense that it wasn't going to happen, and it didn't. And for some reason, it just slid off the national radar. I think it deserves a little more conversation, a little more review, particularly since millions of dollars were spent by the federal government, by the Trudeau government. And we do remember when the um, when the rail blockade was taking place and uh, the economy of this country was being damaged, and Mr. Trudeau had very little useful to say about that situation, he continued his um, global trip trying to sell the international community on Canada being on the uh, Security Council for two years. Well, it's not something you just sweep under the carpet and forget about. Let's talk about this and uh, some other issues with our good friend, uh, Professor Christian Luprecht, class of 1965 professor in leadership at the Royal Military College, a director of the Institute of Intergovernmental Relations at Queen's University, and a senior fellow at the MacDonald Laurier Institute. He's written a number of books, including Public Security in Federal Politics, and wrote an op-ed on this situation with uh, the UN Security Council non-seat for Canada for the Globe and Mail. Christian, uh, thank you so much for the time, and uh, it didn't take very long, did it? Yeah, always my pleasure uh, to discuss these uh, these key issues with you. And I think the, the the broader challenge here is that this is just a symptom of the dysfunction of our international policy more broadly, which I think is sort of by both governments uh, and, and 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 major political parties is has long been characterized by what I would say is ignorance, apathy, incompetence, and ideology. Um, and I think it's just these are really hard topics that require. Uh, very extended, uh, focused uh, thinking about how to make rational decisions. And so it's, I think, just much easier to have uh, personal opinion and ideology uh, override what might actually make uh, short, medium, or long-term sense or be in the rational interest uh, of Canada. And I think so when, and, and, and it shows, I think other countries can identify that, um, when um, our own sort of politics are uh, are marked by contradictions, and I think the other big trend that we see is uh, between the 20th and 21st century. If you look at Borden's um, case for Canada's seat um, at the negotiations that led to the Versailles Treaty, where Canada uh, was able to present itself as a as, as a uh, quasi sovereign entity. Um, if you look at the negotiations that led up to the United Nations and then Louis Saint Laurent's efforts, um, if you look at Pearson's uh, efforts, both as minister and prime minister with regards to the United Nations, or you look at Brian Maroney and you look at the free trade deal, these were all efforts to have um, a, a, an interest-based international policy, but that had broad public legitimacy. We all remember Brian Maroney calling an election over the issue in order to make sure that this policy issue uh, would be broadly legitimated and getting the largest majority uh, in Canadian political history. Um, and what we've seen, I think, in the 21st century is really sort of these narrow-based uh, interest, ideologically driven uh, types of international policy issues that cater to particular slices of stakeholders and voters, but that don't, where governments are no longer going out to 
make sure on the one hand they have broad based uh, broad traction within Canadian society on the one hand and that on the other hand they're geared towards advancing Canadian interests rather than the idiosyncrasies of the government of the day. I had a phrase, a famous Canadian phrase, repeat itself in my brain over and over and over after we became aware that Norway and Ireland had been chosen over Canada by the world body. And it's interesting, we're talking Norway and, uh, and, and Ireland. But the phrase that kept repeating itself in my head was, I'm entitled to my entitlements. And I had a sense that going into this, Mr. Trudeau and his government and those who supported Canada's seat at the Security Council table felt we were entitled. And, and I think in part because what you just talked about, and that is our history, our international history, if you will, but it's not something that's contemporarily seen. It's the, the, the world currently doesn't see Canada as the kind of international player that it used to be. I mean, it is certainly indicative of a decline of uh, Canada's currency in international affairs and its ability to get traction. Um, I would say operationally, um, uh, we would have probably done worse had it not been for Canada's ambassador to the UN, Marc-André Blanchard, who I think uh, did the very best under difficult circumstances um, and I think does represent Canada well. And Canada, of course, also had to contend with China that uh, uh, quietly but aggressively, I think, put on uh, a lobby against Canada mm-hmm. and uh, whose sure, soft yeah. power does have considerable influence um, in a significant uh, portion of countries. Canada, of course, knew this. Uh, and so I think um, the the campaign was sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place, given that key players, uh, of course, all the European countries, but also countries such as Australia that might normally support us, I think were not uh, on side that left the prime minister courting countries in the Middle East and in Africa, uh, many of whom ironically don't quite align with sort of his value-based um, foreign policy. Uh, and so I think those contradictions became increasingly more glaring. In addition to that, I think Canada had good intentions um, with its uh, with the plan that uh, it presented, and that uh, for which Mark Carney is is the representative of sort of a, a, a climate change initiative that is based on on market principles. But of course, those are cheap efforts. They don't require a substantial yeah. Canadian investment. Um, and so I think it became clear that we were facing internal contradictions in our own campaign uh, and that Canada was, quite frankly, I think, uh, not willing to put its money where its mouth is. Um, and I think that's both the fiscal priorities of the government as well as, I think, some reticence by Canadians overall with regards to how much they are willing to back uh, a significant investment in the United Nations because I think there's growing skepticism about the effectiveness of the United Nations more broadly. Oh, definitely, yeah. Let, let me ask you this. You make the point in the op-ed, that, and I'll just read the line here. Canada, however, still clings to the path of least resistance, and Ottawa's pandering has reduced Canadian sovereignty to a foreign policy appendage of the U.S.-Ottawa's uh, actions match uh, words only when the, I'm not reading this properly. In, in other words, the United the Canada has become an extension of the United States. This is how we're seen by many in the, in the world. Is that correct? And then, secondly, the other part of the question is this: Do we lose anything by not receiving the nod for the seat at the United Nations Security Council table? Yeah, I think the uh, to finish your quote there, uh, the the point was sort of that when we actually do see Canada 
following through, it's either because uh, the the Americans um, have asked us to do something or are already there, or it's very clear that um, our own interests are best served by sort of following um, in in a path that the you know, that the U.S. would like to uh, would like us to pursue. Now, I think in the 20th century that might have made good sense because uh, uh, the United States was the key sort of um, uh, rainmaker um, in the post Cold War uh, uh, in the in the in the post World War II um, era. We all know that that is no longer uh, the case, and so Canada had conveniently and successfully hitched its foreign policy, like many other Western countries, to the United States. And so that meant we never had to have a, a conversation about what a real sovereign foreign policy might look like. But look, we've seen the uh, increasing decoupling of Canadian and other Western interests from those of the United States. We've seen the decline of the effectiveness of multilateral institutions, and yet we continue to hitch our wagon to the United States kind of thing, pretending that, you know, hear no evil, see no evil. Um, and that means we don't have to have a deeply, potentially deeply divisive conversation as country about what a real um, sovereign international policy looks like, let alone okay. actually allocate the according budget uh, to that sort of effort. But I think the longer we wait, the more harmful this is going to be to Canadian interests and to Canada's standing. Can I just go back to the issue of Canada not getting the temporary two-year seat at the United Nations Security Council table? Is that a negative for Canada in any way? Does that damage this country going forward? So we live in a global world, and we face global problems. And so multilateral institutions that are broad-based, like the United Nations and the UN Security Council, um, should ostensibly serve to uh, mitigate and contain some of these challenges. But we've seen that the Security Council, for instance, if you look over the last uh, year, and especially the recent months, has been very ineffective because China and Russia are essentially blocking every attempt to get a resolution on anything uh, anything meaningful. So you might make the argument that, um, at least in the short term, it seems there's little leverage to be gained uh, through the Security Council. The problem is, of course, that it seems like the, the, the disagreements are getting worse rather than better. And so by not being at the table, it means we have no opportunity to try to mediate or to assert our own interests Uh, But I would say that the value of those multilateral institutions uh, at present for Canada uh, are probably less than what Canada can achieve uh, bilaterally or with partners multilaterally, such as the European Union and NATO, that are more closely aligned with our interests, with our values and with our priorities. Okay, and it's on us, really, that the seed did not uh, get delivered to Canada because we haven't performed in a manner that Mr. Trudeau insists we have, and the global body clearly disagreed with that. Now, your uh, your, your op-ed for the uh, McDonald-Laurier Institute, I find this really interesting, fascinating, because it's so on the mark. And, uh, and, and we, the, the headline is, Why Faking Parliament is No Way to Govern in a Crisis. What they've essentially done as a minority government is, with a deal, through a deal with the New, New Democrats, is uh, create a dynamic where they are the majority government. They can do pretty much anything they want. We got to the point where there was only a four-hour debate on the over, what is it, $150 billion plus that was spent on the pandemic. I spoke with the parliamentary budget officer earlier today on this program about that. This is a, this is a very disturbing to me. It's a, it's a disturbing reality in Parliament and that we're seeing, and I wonder if a very fundamental cornerstone of our democracy is being compromised by the Trudeau government with intent. 
Yeah, so you'll find the op-ed in the Toronto Star and the study, uh, the longer study that goes along with that on the McDonald laurie Institute website. So what motivated that was really the concern that uh, we have unprecedented restrictions on our personal mobility, on our personal freedoms, and at the same time, unprecedented spending. And so in a democracy, the way we try to make sure that uh, we hold both the political executive, that is to say the government of the day, as well as the civil service that provides advice to that government to account, is through Parliament. And in Canada, the overriding constitutional principle is responsible government. So the government is responsible to the people through Parliament. But of course, if Parliament is essentially being truncated, is essentially being neutered, uh, is being stripped of a whole series of its privileges, then Parliament can't perform its three basic functions, which is to scrutinize uh, federal legislation, which is to authorize that legislation and broad-based representation, because ultimately we want more than just a few staffers or a few cabinet ministers making critical decisions. We want the country to be represented in those decisions. And so the compromise in parliamentary, Westminster-style parliamentary democracy for 300 years has been that when it comes to raising taxes, spending money, and holding the government accountable for spending, that those are the quintessential functions that Parliament performs. And this government has not lived up to its obligations to the Canadian people under Parliamentary Convention in the Westminster system um, to let Parliament do its, uh, do its job. And I understand that tactically that perhaps might be a prudent decision by the executive because they're in a minority position and they might be worried that they might inadvertently end up losing a vote. But really, in a minority position, you want to embrace your opposition, you want to work with them, you want to forge compromises ahead because I think it is more evidence that the government is more intent uh, on trying to assert its particular view of the world rather than trying to forge the, the sort of broad-based democratic legitimacy that is necessary in order to uh, move compromises uh, that will advance uh, the interests of all Canadians, uh, regardless of where they live in this country. In the 30 seconds we have left, do you think they'll pay a price for this? Should they? Well, this is why we live in a democracy, and it is certainly important to draw attention uh, to the conduct of any government that appears to disregard Parliament, um, and minority governments have paid a price in the past. Uh, but hopefully the government will also see the wisdom in consulting more extensively with Parliament in a time of crisis, precisely because, of course, that's what our adversaries do not do. Um, and I fear that this is going to cause derision down the road um, if we don't have a broader-based, consensus-based approach. Always good talking to you, Christian. Thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Christian Luprecht, Class of 1965 Professor in Leadership at the Royal Military College, Director of the Institute of Intergovernmental Relations at Queen's University and a Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute. He's the author of many books, including Public Security in Federal Politics. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.